Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You are listening to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine. The podcast spotlighting pivotal moments, influential figures, and groundbreaking movements from black history from the continent to the diaspora. This is the second episode of our three-part series about the Haitian Revolution, one of history's biggest upsets, a classic David and Goliath moment. In the first episode, which I recommend you listen to if you haven't already, we covered the creation of the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, which from the late 17th century onwards was the primary source of all coffee and sugar consumed in Europe. To make this possible, imported Africans were subjected to a particularly hideous form of slavery. On the island, there was also a class of free mixed-race inhabitants, who had many privileges compared to the enslaved, but were still subjected to widespread discrimination. Members of this group had attempted rebellion before, but as this episode begins, late summer 1791, the slaves, the island's majority population, are preparing to give their lives for a chance at freedom. Christianity and Islam are by far the largest religions in Africa. But as we all know, both religions originated outside the continent. 
And just like the rest of the world, Africa was home to many indigenous religions, each with unique practices and beliefs before the dominance of Christianity and Islam. One such indigenous religion is Vodun, which finds its roots in West Africa, primarily in today's Benin and Togo, as well as in regions of Ghana and Nigeria. The term voodoo roughly translates to spirit in Foon, the official language of the modern Republic of Benin. Over the past century, voodoo has been widely misunderstood. Its followers have often been unfairly portrayed as devil worshippers and practitioners of black magic. To some extent, these misconceptions have been fueled by negative characterizations from certain religious institutions and sensationalized depictions in Hollywood movies. In essence, and very briefly, Voodoo is characterized by its belief in deities and spirits. One prominent figure is Mawu or Mahu, who can be likened to a creator god. The religion also recognizes numerous other deities responsible for various aspects of the spiritual and natural world, including rain, war, love, and fertility. Even trees, rivers, and mountains are believed to possess a spirit. Central to Voodoo is the belief in a parallel spirit realm and that the deceased coexist with the living. Ancestor worship holds a significant role in this religion. Another defining aspect is the presence of fetishes, objects believed to carry a certain power, often associated with specific spirits. These talismans are thought to bring good fortune, possess healing properties, or offer protection against witchcraft and diseases. Through the harrowing era of transatlantic slavery, Voodoo was transported to the Americas. There, it intermingled with local beliefs and various forms of Christianity, giving rise to a range of closely related religions from Cuba to Louisiana. In the context of San Domingue, some aspects of Voodoo displayed similarities with the Catholic saint veneration practiced by French colonizers. The Code Noir, a set of regulations outlining the responsibilities and so-called rights of slaves, included African religions among the prohibited practices. It also mandated the conversion of enslaved individuals to Catholicism. However, suppressing a religion is a formidable challenge, especially one like Voodoo, which lacks holy scriptures or doesn't rely on specific places of worship. There weren't necessarily any books to burn or temples to demolish, making its preservation resilient despite adversity. In addition to West Africa, many enslaved individuals originated from Central Africa notably the Kingdom of Congo. I will delve deeper into that kingdom in a future episode. Still, it's worth knowing that Catholicism had already taken root there. In the 1480s, Portuguese explorers reached this region, and soon afterward, the Congolese king converted to Catholicism. Consequently, many brought to San Domingue were already acquainted with Catholicism, particularly the Congolese variant.
This convergence of beliefs is known as syncretism, signifying a blending or harmonization of religious practices. In San Domingue, the syncretism led to voodoo fusing with Catholicism and living on in secret. When overseers maintained strict vigilance in the daytime, practicing voodoo was virtually impossible. However, under the cover of night, secret ceremonies could take place. For instance, Catholic icons representing saints, like the Virgin Mary, came to symbolize the spirits revered within the voodoo faith. To clarify further, an enslaved individual could pray before an image of the Virgin Mary, but to them, that image embodied a voodoo spirit, such as Erzuli, the spirit of love. In such instances, slave drivers remained oblivious to the true nature of the rituals. Because if a slave driver happened to enter during these events, the enslaved person would just appear to be a devout Christian. Voodoo ceremonies served as a means to foster a sense of community and preserve fragments of the traditions enslaved people had carried with them from Africa. And in San Domingue, a pivotal voodoo ceremony marked the inception of the Haitian Revolution. During a night in August 1791, a large assembly of enslaved people gathered secretly in Boise Cayman, roughly translating to Alligator Forest. Tropical rain poured down, and the ominous sky was periodically illuminated by lightning. The enslaved congregated in a clearing within the dense and untamed forest, holding torches aloft. They had stealthily journeyed there from nearby plantations, and this gathering served as both a strategic meeting and a religious ritual. Leading the ceremony was Cecile Fatiman, the daughter of an enslaved African woman and a French colonizer, and Dutty Bookman, a tall runaway slave. Bookman's origins are believed to be traced back to present-day Jamaica or the Senegambia region of West Africa. Both were voodoo priests. Bookman, whose name is believed to be derived from his reputation as well-read, a man of the book, played a crucial role during the ceremony. He urged the enslaved to rebel. According to accounts, he ritually sacrificed a black pig, consumed its blood, and implored everyone to forsake the oppressive god of their captors in favor of their own deity, who would lead them to freedom. It was the beginning of one of the most momentous revolutions in history. The following evening, the enslaved set fire to the first plantations. This narrative is an illustration of how history and mythology can intertwine. One can easily imagine how the description of this event has been made more colorful over the hundreds of years the story has been told. But regardless of the extent to which this account is embellished, it is widely accepted that the boys came in ceremony did serve as a catalyst for the revolution,
symbolically and practically. Over the following two months, the rebellion swelled to encompass tens of thousands, and some estimates suggest that there may have been as many as 80 to over a hundred thousand enslaved participants. Initially armed with rudimentary tools like machetes, they acquired firearms as they captured more plantations and villages. They set towns and hundreds of plantations ablaze, killing thousands of colonists, including men, women, and children, often in brutal ways. These acts of violence were driven by a desire for revenge for the murders, torture, and sexual assaults the enslaved had endured for so long. It was by force they were held captive. It was by force they would liberate themselves. In response, well-equipped French militias were organized. They mercilessly quelled the uprising, causing the deaths of tens of thousands of rebels. Bookman was fatally shot by the French in one of the battles, and his severed head was placed on a stake, displayed at the square in Cap Francais as a gruesome warning to deter further uprisings. However, each passing day saw the rebellion grow in strength. The French also targeted enslaved individuals who did not participate in the revolt or attempted to flee the conflict, Many enslaved individuals thus realized that loyalty to the slave owners wouldn't save them, and they flocked to join the rebel cause. In addition to their struggle for personal freedom, many enslaved believed they were also fighting on behalf of France. The lofty ideals of the French Revolution, proclaiming the equal worth of all people, resonated deeply. Among the rebels, there was a pervasive belief that it was the colonial masters of Saint-Domingue who resisted implementing the progressive changes promised by the French Revolution. And if this was true, it meant the true traitors were the colonial masters, not the insurgents. A little over six months after the uprising began, the rebels had gained control over more than a third of the colony. The European powers watched in horror as thousands of French colonizers died. This was the very scenario that slave-owning nations had always dreaded, the oppressed black masses rising against them. However, the organization, determination, and capacity for violence displayed by the enslaved exceeded even their worst nightmares. They could scarcely believe that the slaves, whom they had long stigmatized as lazy, unintelligent, and timid, could unite in such force. Growing increasingly desperate, France extended full rights to all of Saint-Domingue's free inhabitants, including those of mixed race and fully black descent, in April 1792. The hope was to exploit the existing division between black slaves and free people of color. If the French could secure the latter's loyalty, they believed it would bolster their chances of maintaining control over the rest of the enslaved. Initially, this tactic yielded results. Still, the subsequent year brought further complications, as newly Republican France found itself at war with the monarchies of Great Britain and Spain. Fearing that the slave revolt might incite similar uprisings elsewhere, 
Saint-Domingue was invaded by the Spanish and British, both of which had colonies in the Caribbean. Their involvement served dual purposes, protecting their interests and seizing control of Saint-Domingue, still the region's primary revenue source. The ensuing weeks and months became a labyrinth of betrayal and short-lived alliances involving a bewildering array of parties. France, the free people of color, the enslaved, Spain, Great Britain, and Saint-Domingue's French colonizers who were not a monolithic group. This group included wealthy merchants and plantation owners intent on preserving their status, and poor laborers, clerks, farmers, and sailors who did not own plantations and harbored resentment for being excluded from the potential wealth. Their disdain extended not only to the enslaved, but also to the affluent French class and the influential free people of color whom they believed had gained too much influence. Even the names of these two groups of colonizers reflected their differing status and perspectives. They were called Grand Blancs and Petite Blancs, essentially translating to Big Whites and Small Whites. Another factor in this complex landscape was the Maroons, enslaved people who had escaped and established their own communities in remote, challenging-to-reach areas, whether high in the mountains, deep in the jungles, or within swamps. Maroon colonies like these existed throughout the Americas, from Brazil to the United States. In Saint-Domingue, these maroon communities stood out for their unwavering determination to live in freedom. Their primary goal was to avoid a return to slavery, but they were not necessarily eager to integrate into the societies envisioned by the rebel leaders. Throughout the war, the maroon colonies shifted allegiances multiple times. This period of turmoil could be explored in an entire season of episodes due to the abundance of significant battles, integrate agreements, and betrayals. However, I will instead focus on the emergence of a key figure during this time, Toussaint Louverture. Born into slavery in Saint-Domingue sometime between 1739 and 1746, Louverture is believed to have toiled on a plantation where he escaped the worst treatment, learned to read and write, and gained his freedom at 33. He continued working on the plantation where he had grown up, but now as a paid laborer. Eventually, he leased his own coffee plantation and reportedly utilized enslaved individuals on it. Louverture eventually became a prominent and relatively respected figure within society. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Toussaint Louverture did not immediately join the revolution when it erupted. Instead, he chose to bide his time. The reasons behind this decision remain enigmatic. According to certain theories, he may have secretly participated in planning the rebellion, but opted to stay in the background, possibly acting as a covert operative. Other theories propose that he simply wished to assist the progress of the uprising before committing himself. Historians have managed to document that he eventually orchestrated the escape of his former plantation owner's family, ensured his own family got to safety in Santo Domingo, and then aligned himself with George Biasul, one of the early leaders of the rebels. By this point, Louverture was in his 40s, an age few enslaved individuals in San Domingue reached. Initially, he attended to the wounded due to his knowledge of herbal medicine. However, his education and respectable age quickly propelled him into positions of greater responsibility. He began contributing to strategic discussions and devising guerrilla tactics. Before long, he commanded his own unit of 600 well-trained rebel soldiers. Louverture had previously been open to negotiations, willing to consider allowing slavery to persist under certain conditions, such as abolishing the whip as a form of punishment and granting the enslaved more days off during the week. However, as the war continued, he became increasingly convinced that all of the island's slaves needed to be emancipated. In Saint-Domingue, freedom and equality would prevail. Initially, he sought assistance from Spain in the struggle against the French colonizers. However, in 1793, perhaps in a bid to prevent the complete loss of the colony, Saint-Domingue's French commissioner, Légère Félicité Sontonax, made a proposition. He asserted that the slaves in the island's northern province, which he still controlled, should be liberated. The condition was that they return to labor and align with France. Louverture and other rebel leaders met this proposal skeptically, doubting whether Sontanax possessed the authority to implement it. Nevertheless, in February 1794, the official directive arrived directly from France. All slaves in the country's colonies were to be emancipated, recognized as French citizens and protected under the Constitution. Historians hold varying opinions on whether this change catalyzed Louverture's disassociation with Spain or if other factors were in play. 
Regardless of the impetus, he found himself fighting alongside the French a few months later, leading his army, which had grown to just over 4,000 soldiers. This shift in allegiance is yet another illustration of the complex nature of this revolt. It was not a straightforward conflict pitting one country against another, slaves against the free, black against white, or good against evil. The entire war unfolded amidst shades of grey. The following year witnessed Spain's withdrawal from the war. The country was forced to relinquish its share on Hispaniola, the colony of Santo Domingo, today's Dominican Republic, to France. Meanwhile, Britain faced a series of military disasters. Despite dispatching significant troop contingents to the island, many succumbed to a rapid pace of fatalities, primarily due to yellow fever and malaria. Yellow fever, in particular, inflicted horrifying and gruesome symptoms that included delirium, bleeding from the eyes, and a regurgitation of clotted blood, a condition referred to as vomito negro, Spanish for black vomit. However, the rebels, many of whom possessed backgrounds as military veterans from well-organized African states, such as the Kingdom of Congo, also contributed to the mounting death toll through their disciplined and ruthless tactics. In all regions occupied by the British, they revoked the prior promises of freedom made by the French. Under British rule, formerly emancipated slaves were once again subjected to enslavement. For the black population of Saint-Domingue, their hard-fought freedom was on the line and they waged their struggle as if they were utterly unwilling to relinquish it. Throughout the war, women assumed pivotal roles on the rebel society. Like the men, they faced the risk of enslavement and were equally determined to emerge victorious. Women were responsible for cultivating crops that would sustain the soldiers, transporting weapons and caring for the wounded. In the bustling markets, they functioned as both smugglers and messengers. It was common for them to use sex in various ways to their quote-unquote advantage, if you can call it that. Sex could, for example, be used to avoid enslavement or to pardon a relative or friend. Women working as prostitutes proved to be adept spies, and there were instances of them trading their bodies to European soldiers in exchange for ammunition, which they subsequently delivered to the rebels. At times, women even took direct and active roles in battle. Given the rapid influx of Africans into Saint-Domingue, Many rebels were first-generation Africans. Some West African cultures from which these individuals hailed had different war traditions than Europe, where women typically occupied roles that kept them away from the front lines. For instance, in the Kingdom of Dahomey, modern-day Benin, there were entire regiments of female soldiers, later referred to by Europeans as Amazons. When women from these cultural backgrounds found themselves in Saint-Domingue, it was only natural for them to pick up a weapon and leap into battle.
It is estimated that Britain lost approximately 100,000 men during this costly war. Nearly half perished, while the remainder became too gravely ill or severely injured to continue their military careers. In Ireland, soldiers protested upon learning they would be sent to Saint-Domingue. Imagine being recruited to embark on a near-certain suicide mission in a far-off land you've scarcely heard of, in a war you barely comprehend. During the rainy season, mosquitoes thrived in Saint-Domingue's humid jungles and swamps. At the time, it was unknown that these mosquitoes were the carriers of malaria and yellow fever. In addition, the traditional British soldier's uniform, consisting of a thick wool coat, proved ill-suited for the sauna-like climate. Finally, in the summer of 1798, a peace agreement was brokered. In exchange for Britain's withdrawal from the island and the cessation of his trade blockade, an embarrassing defeat, Louverture pledged not to support or incite a slave revolt in Britain's colony of Jamaica. The most immediate external threats were now eliminated. It's important to remember that even though the rebellion initially began as an uprising against France, the war evolved to the point where France emancipated all the slaves and Louverture fought for France towards the end. By vanquishing the British, he ensured the colony would remain under French control. As the primary commander on the ground, Louverture began to regard himself as entitled to govern over Saint-Domingue. However, other prominent rebel leaders harbored aspirations of leading the colony themselves. Gradually, an internal struggle for control over Saint-Domingue began to surface. On one side, Toussaint Louverture stood as the ruler of the northern provinces, while on the other side was André Rigaud, who had assumed control over the southern territories. Rigaud belonged to the island's free people of color, the son of a wealthy plantation owner and a slave woman. In his youth, he had received training as a goldsmith in Bordeaux. Rigaud played a significant role during the war, leading the conquest of southern Saint-Domingue on behalf of the rebels. However, Rigaud was unwilling to relinquish the territory he now governed, especially not to Louverture. Rigaud adhered to the old doctrine that placed mixed-raced individuals above fully black people in the social hierarchy. He even went to the extent of wearing a wig made of straight brown hair to closely imitate the appearance of a white man. What began as a simmering rivalry escalated into a full-fledged armed conflict known as the War of Knives, which raged for nearly two years. While this conflict is sometimes simplified as a battle between Saint-Domingue's black people and the colony's free people of color, a deeper examination reveals that it was influenced by multiple factors. Race or similar distinctions played a role, but class dynamics were also significant. There were tensions between the wealthy and the impoverished, landowners and laborers, and military and agricultural workers. Notably, individuals of both black and mixed-race backgrounds fought on both sides of the conflict. Ultimately, Rigaud was defeated and fled the island. 
Although Saint-Domingue still officially remained a French colony, Toussaint Louverture now wielded absolute power in practice. He stood at the pinnacle, the sole ruler, and the population no longer slaves. But around the same time, in 1799, a coup took place in France, placing an ambitious general at the helm of a new authoritarian French regime. For Napoleon Bonaparte, Saint-Domingue was a colony the French Empire could not afford to lose. Some of its advisors believed Saint-Domingue could be restored to its former prosperity and become an invaluable asset yet again, but only if slavery were reinstated. And for that to happen, a black former slave could hardly be left to rule the island. France needed to regain control, no matter the cost. You have listened to Black History Unveiled with me, Amat Levine, and the second part about the Haitian Revolution. We've delved into the initial stages of the revolt, essentially laying the groundwork. We've introduced the key figures, outlined their strategies, and illuminated their motivations. The third and final part is set to be released in two weeks. In that episode, everything will unravel. Toussaint Louverture and the rest of the liberated slaves will face an overwhelmingly powerful adversary and insurmountable odds. The violence in Saint-Domingue will reach apocalyptic proportions. I'll see you guys then. Peace. <laughs>